This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. The Capital One Venture X business card earns unlimited double miles on every purchase. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash VentureXBusiness. This message comes from NPR sponsor Comcast. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed internet. But the barriers to getting connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. You've probably heard the William Shakespeare quote that the eyes are windows to the soul. Whether you believe in a soul or not, there's some truth to this. We make eye contact with others to show that we're listening, to connect, or simply as a way of saying, I see you. During the pandemic, our eyes were often the only features strangers could see above our face masks. Cultures around the world have understood the power of eyes for centuries. If you travel to India, Chad, Japan, Iran, or just around the corner from your house, you'll probably see the same thing around the eyes of the people who live there. Eyeliner. I've worn it probably since I was 15. In ninth grade, I saw a friend of mine wear eyeliner, and I thought it made her eyes look so beautiful. And uh, so ever since then, I have worn eyeliner. The older I've gotten, the less I wear makeup. But whenever I do, I put on eyeliner. I'm a recovering goth, and I've been with my now wife, Maya, for, gosh, about 25 plus years. Um, And back in London, where we used to live, she would help me with my eyeliner. So um, I think an early uh, sign that we might be a good fit for one another was when she would have me look at the ceiling and, quote, pretend that Robert Smith from The Cure is on the ceiling so that she could do my eyeliner effectively. First time I bought eyeliner, I think I was probably 12. And it was some generic dollar stick eyeliner. And I was big into heavy metal back then. And I loved it. I love how eyeliner makes my eyes pop. Thank you for all those messages. We'll learn about the significance of eyeliner as more than a beauty product and its historic role in religion, ritual, and culture. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where hundreds of researchers and clinicians make new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber scientists. See why nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Learn more about their momentum. Go to DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. 
And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXLLearning.com. In her new book, Eyeliner, A Cultural History, Lebanese-British journalist Zara Hankier explores beauty, power, identity, and resistance through the lens of the iconic cosmetic. And she joins us now from New York. Zara, it's great to have you. Hi, Jen. It's so great to be here. Thank you so much. Zara, let's start with the the very, very basic. (laughs) How do you define eyeliner? I would say it is a substance that um, lines the eye that is usually worn to accentuate or enhance the eye, often to enlarge the eye. But what I try to argue in my book is that it is far more than a beauty product. So it does a lot more than that in several different cultures and communities around the world. And I'm happy to mention those uses now if you'd like me to. Well, we'll get we'll get there. But I, yeah. I want to first make sure to note that you you say you, you try not to call eyeliner a beauty product. Why not? Because it goes far beyond beauty. So in many cultures, it signifies spiritual significance, religious significance. It also has medicinal purposes and practical purposes. And also it ties many people to their heritage and to their ancestry. So to me, it is, of course, it is a beauty product, but it's so much more than that. So to my mind, when I say beauty products, it feels a little bit reductive. Where does the practice of lining our eyes originate? What are some of the, the earliest examples we see? Sure. So it originates in ancient Egypt. And in, in that um, civilization, it was used for some of the purposes that I just outlined now. So it was a form of sort of honoring the gods. It uh, was a form, of course, to express your beauty and aesthetics, but it also uh, guarded against the glare of the sun. It warded off the evil eye. It also helped medicinally. So um, it would treat the eye of various eye ailments as well. And uh, I actually uh, argue in the book that Queen Nefertiti is the first uh, and original beauty influencer because she wore um, eyeliner as women and men across ancient Egypt did. But she she's really sort of the, the focus of my book um, because of, of our fascination with her bust. Now, the eyeliner you get at, a, say, a CVS here in the U.S. is not the same as a liner you'd get from a market in the Middle East. What different materials can eyeliner be made of? Sure. Western eyeliner is highly, highly processed, whereas in other cultures around the world, often eyeliner, depending on the name, it could be kahal or kajal or surme, depending on which community we're looking at. It is made from natural substances. So those substances could include anything from the sap of a tree. It could include plants. It might include date seeds, olives. It might even include blood or bone or stones. Really what happens with these different materials is that they're often burned and then the soot that's created from the burning of the material is what creates the dark pigment, which is then deposited onto the water lines or the eyelid. And to do that, you would require a liquid and the liquid itself also varies. It could be rose water, it could be water, it could be saliva. So you see a wide range of materials used, but I think what connects those cultures is that those materials are natural materials and substances. Now, you're a big fan of coal. That's K-O-H-L. What is coal? 
Yeah, um, in Arabic, it's it's called kahal. This is the original iteration of eyeliner that was used in ancient Egypt. And back then it was made from minerals such as galena and malachite. And coal is still worn today across the Middle East and Africa and Asia. It takes on different names in different places, like I said. But um, it carries such cultural significance within these communities. There's so much mention of coal in Arabic literature, film, poetry. It kind of signifies the importance of the eye when it comes to the beauty of a woman. But also far beyond that, it is worn, again, for um, spiritual and religious purposes to guard against the evil eye. I think the religious element is quite interesting as well because in Islam, the Prophet Muhammad was said to have worn a form of eyeliner. So it is considered permissible um, amongst Muslim communities for both men and women to wear it. And again, that is a way to profess one's religiosity. In terms of my own personal connection to it, I've always felt that it connects me to my ancestry, to this lineage of incredible non-Western women who might be my own relatives or, or other you know, women in Arab history or Lebanese or Egyptian history that I feel deeply connected to. So when I wear eyeliner in the West or coal in the West, I feel like I'm connecting to my heritage. So it's like a palpable object that I feel connects me to these layers of history. Azara, your last book was an anthology about Arab women reporting on the conflicts in their home countries. It's called Our Women on the Ground. And we'll talk more about that project later. But you were nervous about following that with a book about eyeliner. What concerns did you have around writing this book? Absolutely. Um, Well, the first book was really um, quite, let's say, profound and layered and hefty in terms of the themes that it carried, because it was inevitably women writing um, about their experiences covering the Middle East and the Arab world as journalists. And that carries a lot of trauma. So there's a lot of war, a lot of conflict. It was also a celebration of their work. But of course, because those themes seem quite different than the themes that are in eyeliner, the shift was, was quite in some ways challenging. I would say that today, given what's happening in Gaza and Palestine, I'm, I'm experiencing the same sort of, it's, it's almost slightly jarring. On the surface, it seems that way. But actually, what I think unites the two books is that what I'm trying to do in my work is to deflect from the Western gaze and to elevate stories from, you know, communities of color, minority communities, people who are often neglected in this part of the world in terms of storytelling. And I think I'm, I'm also trying to celebrate the work or the contributions of those people. So in the first book, it's a contribution of journalists, of women journalists to journalism. And then in the second book, it's a contribution of communities of color to the beauty industry. So in that sense, the two books are similar, though they're quite different. And I have to say, my mother played a significant role in pushing me to do this second book because she said to me that the stories of our culture and our communities and celebrating the culture, that's just as important as stories about pain and suffering and tragedy Mm -hmm. and trauma. And that oftentimes, actually, we don't focus enough on those stories of joy and celebration. Do you remember a moment where you had the idea, you know, there is there is a story to tell around eyeliner, this specific object that has this broader cultural significance. Sure. I think I'd always been fascinated with the story of eyeliner. And that again started with my mother because I observed her applying eyeliner in such a ritualistic way while we lived in the United Kingdom during the Lebanese Civil War. So it was a way to connect my mother to her heritage. And then obviously I inherited that same sort of thinking 
um, when it came to applying my eyeliner. It wasn't until much later on that I started to actually do the research because I had a fascination with ancient Egypt in the same way that my father did because he's part Egyptian. And then I think at a certain point when I was researching book ideas following my first book, um, I was actually having a dinner with an Iranian friend, Azadeh, and uh, we were both talking about the significance of eyeliner in both of our cultures. So it's kohal in the Arab world and surme in Persia. And then I had kind of a, a, th- this moment where I thought, hang on a minute, this could actually really work as a cultural history, given that these communities actually all have sort of unique ways of let's say, producing eyeliner and sometimes wearing it. But there's a lot of intersectionality there in terms of sort of what purposes they have beyond beauty. So I think it was really at that point where I thought, okay, this could really be a book. But the the foundations were far earlier than that, as I said, when I was Mm. observing my mother apply her eyeliner. Well, and it's interesting to hear you describe that as a ritual, watching your mom apply that makeup and and there being a, a ritualistic feel to it? Is that a through line you found as you were researching this book, that there is that there is a ritual built into the use of this product? Absolutely. I found I found it across all of the cultures and, and countries that I visited. So I, I traveled to Chad, to India, to Jordan, to Japan, even to Los Angeles to visit the Mexican-American Chola community. And there's a profound understanding amongst these cultures and communities that, again, this item of makeup is not simply about beauty. It is connecting us to our history and it has practical, medicinal, spiritual and religious purposes. And therefore, when they're applying the makeup, cup, it almost takes on sort of a different, a different layer, so to speak, of, you know, this is us sort of connecting ourselves to that identity. At the same time, of course, we all realize that eyeliner has aesthetic benefits. So there was, in some cases that, you know, people would be talking very seriously about this historical connection and preserving tradition, but especially with the Bedouin community in Petra, there was a lot of young men who would kind of wink at each other and be like, come on, we know that we're wearing this to to look more attractive, right? So there's also <laughs> that element of it. It's not always that deep, but it, it does carry, it does carry profound meaning. Coming up, the fine line of self-expression when it comes to wearing eyeliner in Iran. We'll be back after a short break. This message comes from NPR sponsor SAP Concur. Stuart McLean, CFO of Brother UK, shares how SAP Concur's audit and expense tool supports their work across multiple offices. Across Europe, we, we have a presence in 17 countries, which obviously involves 17 different tax regulations, 17 different fiscal authorities, you know, and this, this makes life complicated for us. Um, but actually with SAP Concur, we're able to configure the system correctly for each of those countries. We're able to configure the audit rules correctly for each of those countries. So actually it gives us a lot of efficiency and good governance as well. So actually for us, a solution like SAP Concur makes life so much easier. Otherwise, we'd be forever checking back to regulations, checking back to documentation. Those are automatically updated in the system for us. So that's, you know, it's a big tick in the box from a governance perspective and an efficiency perspective as well. Visit concur.com to learn more. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. 
Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Zara, take us back to the first time you wore eyeliner. Do you remember that moment? What was it like for you? So it was my best friend who was Egyptian and I was in the UK and she was slightly older than me and she wanted to make me over, so to speak, which means that she wanted to apply makeup to my face. I'd never worn it. And she applied coal to my to my waterlines and, you know, eyeliner to my lids. And I remember looking in the mirror and thinking I could like I'd come into focus, like I could mm-hmm. find, finally see myself for the first time in a way that I had not seen myself before. And I felt very much that I felt empowered. I felt almost like, okay, this thing that I had been observing my mother do, I can now do that myself. And people are going to look at me differently because I'm looking at myself differently as well. And I love the idea of eyeliner conveying messages. That's very central to my book, that when you're wearing eyeliner, you are telling the world something, right? The message is up to you really, but you are delivering or conveying a message to the world. Well, in the book, you talk about the ways eyeliner is used for resistance by women in Iran. What role does it play? So I would say in Iran, it's it's such a unique and fascinating case given, you know, women's bodies are policed there. And um, there, there's been, for many decades, there, there have been a, sort of a, an outsized importance placed on the face because there isn't much else to experiment with in terms of self-expression. Um, and, and the makeup that is applied to the face is, it's, it almost it takes on an additional sort of um, level of, of importance because it's very sort of intentional, right? So if you're wearing lipstick and eyeliner in a particular way, again, to sort of convey whatever message you want to convey, then you have to really be putting a lot of thought into it, given that if you're um, attracting too much attention, that that's, um, you know, not something that's always desirable, depending on what context you're in. And officially in the 1979 revolution, Islamic revolution, cosmetics were banned. At the same time, what's quite interesting with eyeliner itself is, as I said earlier in the episode, that um, basically it has been considered in some ways uh, permissible in Islam for people to wear it, as long as you're doing it without the intent of attracting attention. There's a kind of a fine line, so to speak, Mm. pun intended there. But you see sort of the younger women experimenting a lot in Iran, especially Gen Z and especially online with liquid eyeliner looks and and wings that sort of are conveying a completely different message than, let's say, a, a thinner or finer line along the waterline, right, where um, you might be using sorme for that, which is the naturally produced eyeliner substance, whereas you might be using liquid eyeliner and making sort of a, quite a bold statement by wearing wings. So it's, it's a nuanced story there, but I think the importance is that it's really central to their self-expression and also to their heritage as well, in the same way that coal is central to Arab heritage too. We're also hearing from you Pamela emails, once I saw Cher wear the Cleopatra eyeliner when I was 14, I was hooked. I never go out without it. Now, before Cher, Zara, there was Nefertiti, who had a major influence on you. Why did you connect to her so much? I Because I had spent um, so much of my childhood um, growing up in the United Kingdom, my parents had moved there during the Lebanese Civil War. I I always knew that I was different and I was also made to feel that I was different. And I was in constant search of things that would connect me to my identity. And uh, I was always sort of looking for something tangible to hold on to. And my father is half Egyptian himself and he had this obsession with Egyptology. 
And we always had so many objects in the home that, you know, reference his being um, Egyptian. So I at one point stumbled across an image of Nefertiti. And like so many others, I was sort of infatuated or engrossed by this image. There is something so stunning about the way she's presented in her bust. And that kind of led me down this path of sort of discovery and this feeling that I was connecting to something that was much bigger than myself and that this was part of my heritage. And, you know, I by feeling connected to Nefertiti, I was feeling connected to my own origins in some way. And um, I think that that has strengthened actually with, with all of the research that I've done as well. And the eyeliner really, I think, is what is quite captivating about her appearance on her bust. So that was the object really that that I ended up thinking, okay, wow, this is going to connect me not only to Nefertiti, but also to my grandmothers, to my mother, to so many other beguiling sort of non-Western women. And, and you argue that she's the world's first beauty influencer. Make make the case for Nefertiti as a beauty influencer. More than happy to do that. Um, so her bust was discovered um, just over 100 years ago, but it was actually displayed in a museum in Germany after it was taken out of Egypt. Um, it should return to Egypt, I'd just like to say. And once it was displayed, it, uh, it, it garnered so much attention. People were so fascinated by this quote-unquote exotic beauty and how to emulate that beauty. So a lot of Western women started to try to copy her look in a way and um, they they were looking at three different things. So it was her fashion by way of the collar necklace that she wore and um, her hat, which was like her crown. So some women would start to, uh, you know, wear their hair in a particular way or wear hats in a particular way. And of course, there was her eyeliner. So there were many spreads in beauty magazines that would have, you would have a white woman sort of posing next to the bust of Nefertiti with her eyes heavily done up to kind of channel this exotic look. And I argue in the book that cosmetic companies sort of caught on to this and then they started thinking, okay, we need to start marketing this product. And that is what I argue um, is what propelled the popularity of eyeliner in the 1920s and beyond. Of course, it existed in different forms, but it, it didn't become as popular as it did, I argue, until the um, this period of time was called Egyptomania. So it was when Tutankhamun's um, tomb was found and Nefertiti's bust was displayed to the world. And there was this almost fascination with the exoticism of ancient Egypt. And it was a very Orientalist and at times sort of racist approach to, um, you know, to, to this culture because there was a form of cherry picking of elements of Nefertiti's beauty that people wanted to emulate. But in some beauty magazines, they would say things like, beware, you know, don't darken your skin too much or, you know, and that's essentially, it's essentially cultural appropriation um, that still exists in many forms today where you're fetishizing, um, but you're not humanizing, right? So I found that to also be quite fascinating. And, you know, that that to me is sort of the, the first moment of, um, uh, of a woman influencing an entire generation of women or several generations of women, whilst also having that backdrop of, you know, um, fetishization and then also racism at the same time. Let's go back to our inbox. When I was younger, I used to go to a lot of concerts. And because of all the sweat and everything, I, I always went with really cheap eyeliners. But the girls in my life would always come up with the better eyeliner when they saw me running. They'd clean my makeup off, and then they put the new eyeliner from their own bag 
on. I ended up being on the cover of a local newspaper, having my eyeliner done by some uh, girl and uh, at this concert, and it was kind of to bring attention to how popular the local rock scene was coming. I still today have that newspaper, and it's like 20 years old now. I'm a kind of older Gen Z, early millennial cusp, and was growing up right around the kind of scene kid era, and um, that's when I first started uh, experimenting with makeup. I was probably like 13, 14 years old. Um, later on, I transitioned to male and kind of stopped wearing makeup for several years, but it's been really fun to get back into it and kind of use it to explore gender and cosplay and art and use it in uh, more than cosmetic means, but more expressive. We also got this message from Sana, who emails, Thanks for having a discussion on this topic. I'm a black female and generally quite proud of my trans identity, but there are times and spaces where I wouldn't feel comfortable being visibly identifiable as trans. Applying just a little eyeliner strategically placed can actually go a long way to helping me slide under the radar, enhancing both my confidence and possibly my safety. We're going to take a quick break. More on eyeliner and gender that's coming up in just a moment. Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. Zara, you interview people from all genders in the book, not just women. What did you hear from these other groups about what eyeliner means to them? I think a, a chapter that's quite relevant to this discussion is the chapter that I have on drag queens in New York City. Um, there are two uh, fantastic characters, Lucia Fuchsia and Anya Nies, um, which is fantastic titles for drag queens. Um, but what I really learned from from both of them is that uh, eyeliner played such a significant role in their transformation when they would become queens. So um, one of the the queens, actually, Lucia Fuchsia, when I when I met um, him when he was out of costume, um, he was so understated and humble and really not the type of person that you would look at and say this person really wants attention or is sort of screaming, please look at me and I'm very confident, actually seemed to be quite sort of um, introverted. And then um, when I saw uh, Julian uh, on stage as Lucia, I was, it was incredible because the confidence, the level of confidence that eyeliner and the overall aesthetic um, brought to uh, Julian was just, in, it, it, was, it was moving actually to witness because it was almost like, okay, this is, this is an area where he feels like he belongs. He had been trying to find a segment of the queer community in which he feels comfortable with expressing himself and celebrating um, his sort of um, identification, his gender identification and growing as a, you know, a queer person and that kind of thing. So I, I do think it speaks um, quite profound messages. And I appreciate that the, the message that it can also help um, trans people in some ways feel safe too. Uh, I, I do think that that's the power of eyeliner, that it carries that kind of weight, that it can help you transform and it can help you also blend in depending on the message you're trying to convey. 
We got this email from Uma, who writes, In South India, the traditional coal is homemade by burning sandalwood paste with alamo lit with castor oil. The sandalwood paste is spread on the bottom of a slightly curved bowl and is placed above the slant for the sandalwood to burn. The charred remains are collected and mixed with castor oil to form a thick gel and stored in small, beautiful, traditional boxes. We also got this question from Callie, who says, Can the author address her thoughts about the safety concerns around coal? The FDA warns against using traditional coal. Was this something you researched for the book? Absolutely. I appreciate that question very much. The earliest iterations of eyeliner in ancient Egypt contained lead. And uh, this actually spurred a lot of contemporary scientific studies as to, you know, the safety of having lead in eye makeup. Of course, having high levels of lead is extremely harmful to the eye. But there are some studies uh, that were conducted as, as um, you know, early as 100 years ago that demonstrated that actually very small levels of lead could provoke an immune response in the eye. And that could then treat the eye if there was a bacterial infection. So in many ways, I say the Egyptians were sort of far ahead of us. At the same time, you know, a couple of years ago, actually, here in, in New York City, there was a PSA from the um, New York City Department of Hygiene and Health that said um, if there was an image of a South Asian baby with heavily lined eyes that said, you know, we warn against the use of coal and kajal because this is harmful to the eye because of the lead content. And and this is a cause for concern because there are some formulas of eyeliner that's, that use a level of lead that is too high that is harmful for the eye. In some of these communities, you know, people have stopped putting eyeliner around around the eyes of their babies and they put like a dot on the forehead instead, that kind of thing. So there are concerns. Those concerns are valid. But what I will say is it depends on the level of lead. And if there are very, very small levels of lead, as I said, historically, as far back as ancient Egypt, there, you know, there is some scientific proof that that may have actually boosted an immune response in the eye. But that's a, that's a very good question. Choda emails, in Sierra Leone, we use Tiro to line our eyes. It's a beautiful metallic blue and is gorgeous. It used to be applied under the eyes of babies for its medicinal purposes. I love it and use sapphire or teal pencil to underline my eyes. And Charlize emails, I wear little to no makeup, but I have eyeliner tattoos. I'll soon be 76 years old. Zara, I want to circle back to your last book, Our Women on the Ground, Essays by Arab Women Reporting from the Arab World. You edited this anthology to center Arab women's experiences covering conflict in their countries. And that book feels particularly relevant in this current moment. The war between Israel and Hamas has been one of the deadliest for journalists. The majority of those fatalities are Palestinian journalists living in Gaza. How are you thinking about that project in this moment? It's been emotional in many ways because the the essay in Our Women of the Ground by the Palestinian journalist who's actually from Gaza, Asma al-Ghul, um, I was greatly moved by that essay in part because of the extent to which she illustrated or demonstrated the emotional and psychological toll that being a journalist in Gaza had on her. And there are many instances in that chapter that, that actually led me to crying. And I continue to this day when I reread that chapter um, to really understanding how difficult and dangerous 
and also psychologically challenging it can be to be a journalist in that particular context. Many women and men are on the ground there and posting video after video on Instagram documenting what is happening so that the world can see unfiltered accounts of what is unraveling there and, and the horrific nature of what is unraveling there. And this also brings to mind Shirin Abu Akli, who was killed um, by Israeli forces last year. And it's um, in some ways it just... It actually demonstrates the importance of valuing local voices and understanding that they're not only bringing us news, they are risking their lives to bring us the news. And it is crucial to ensure their safety. And especially in the case of Gaza, actually, what makes it so much more unique is that foreign journalists are not allowed in there right now. So it is even more important to be following what is being documented by journalists on the ground there. And I would urge people to really understand the risks that are being taken and the emotional toll that this work is having on these individuals. Some people have actually lost family members. Um, you know, some people continue to really have no um, form of safety to not be able to charge their phones, to not have access to water and food and that kind of thing. They are Gazans like the rest of Gazans, right? Just because they're journalists, it doesn't set them apart. They don't have any special protections in the way that Western journalists do. So to me, uh, you know, looking back at the book and that particular essay, it really highlights to me just how important it, it remains for us to value these voices and to uplift them. I want to get to this question we got from Andrea, who writes, what is the history of eyeliner use in older women? Was it historically just used for those over 14 and under 15? Older women are often invisible. That's such a good question. And it's really difficult to pinpoint, you know, the range of the age range of when people start to and finish wearing eyeliner, because it really varies depending on the culture in the community. For example, as I said, there are newborn babies who will have eyeliner applied to their eyes and they will continue wearing it up until up until a certain age as a toddler, for example, and then they may resume wearing it once they get a little bit older. My grandma, who was Egyptian, wore eyeliner until the day that she died, you know, in her final years when she was, you know, sick and in bed, she still put eyeliner on her eyes. What I will say, though, is that it is a symbol of coming of age in many cultures. When when a, a woman comes of age, she'll start to wear eyeliner. In some cultures also, men will uh, wear eyeliner when they're single. And then when they get married, they stop wearing it, similar to women. But, there, you know, I went to Chad and uh, I, I wrote about a community in Chad and there were elderly women there who were wearing it as well. But that was for medicinal purposes. Well, I wish we had enough time to get some tips from you because I, I would imagine you pick some up along the way. And we've got lots of questions about applying eyeliner, but maybe we can have that conversation another day. That's Zara Henkier. She's a Lebanese-British journalist and author of Eyeliner, a Cultural History. And if you haven't heard yet, we just launched 1A+. When you join 1A+, you get to listen to our show sponsor-free, and you're supporting our work. Go to plus.npr.org slash the1a to find out more. Today's producers were Anna Casey and Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, ShipBob. 
E-commerce logistics making you question why you started your business? Time to outsource fulfillment to the experts over at ShipBob. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. ShipBob. Spend time in any American city and you'll likely encounter someone with untreated psychosis. Lost Patients is a new podcast examining our maze-like system for treating severe mental illness, which loses patients to an endless loop between the streets, jail, and hospitals. Does it have to be this way? For the history, the reality, and hopefully some solutions, listen to Lost Patients from KUOW and the Seattle Times, part of the NPR Network.